Well, let's get our Bibles open to Luke chapter 5 as we march verse by verse through this story. And uh, every time we open it, we are encountering a different narrative of the life, the unfolding life of Jesus. That happens on every page of the Bible, but specifically when we get to the Gospels. You know, every good story needs a good villain, right? When you read a novel or you go to a movie, there's always this antagonist that is the counter to the protagonist. What are some of the villains you think of about some of the movies that you've seen or the books that you've watched? I think the most famous villain in all of movie history is Darth Vader, right? Darth Vader, right? And of course, you know, later in the story, you find out, you know, there's reason to be sympathetic toward the villain. I'm sorry, that was a spoiler alert um, for those of you that never seen Star Wars. Like Micah Clutinati has never seen Star Wars. How can you be a worship pastor and never see? That's an, I don't know. Anyway, uh, some other villains. I mean, who are some other villains you think of? You know how I think, I think of um, Mr. Potter. You know who Mr. Potter is? What, what's the movie Mr. Potter shows up in? It's a Wonderful Life. Remember that guy? Oh, man, that guy's a creepy guy. And, of course, you got Batman, uh, That uh, his protagonist. He had a lot of those villains. You had the Joker. And, um, and then, of course, I, I know the one that you were thinking of immediately. The most famous villain of all is Wiley Coyote with the Roadrunner, right? I mean, he was like notorious trying to blow stuff up and capture this guy. He put Acme out of business. Anyway, there's a lot of villains. Now today, we're gonna get introduced to the villain in Luke's story. And you know what we do? We villainize this villain so much that we fail to see ourselves in this particular villain. The villain that we're talking about is this group of guys called the Pharisees. Now, I told you last week that as we get to this section in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see five different stories just in succession where the, the villains show up. And so Luke is obviously trying to tell us something about these Pharisees, but he's also trying to help us to see ourselves in the Pharisees. Um, let me just show you. Let's just jump into it here. Luke chapter 5. Let's begin reading in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So we're introduced, first of all, to this guy named Levi. Now, just a little hint in the story over, there's a book in our Bible called the Gospel of Matthew. Guess who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Levi. There's another name for Matthew, okay? So he's known by these two different names, and he tells us what his occupation is. Now, Levi's occupation was a tax collector. Okay, so he was the guy that sat at the toll booth, like on the toll road, and he collected the taxes. And the, the tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low people. Um, the, what they were, they were in collusion with the Russian, I mean the Roman government. <laughs> They were in collusion with the Roman government to collect the taxes. So the Romans were occupying the Jewish people and they needed to collect taxes from the Jewish people. So they employed a Jew to collect the taxes from the Jewish people. And whatever he could extort out of them over what they were required to pay, he could keep. So this guy was a bully and, and he was considered a traitor and, and he was on the wrong side of the political party at the time. And so 
it must have been a shock to Levi when Jesus looked him in the eye and said, you follow me. Now, don't try that the next time you're on the tow road and you get to the tow booth. It's not going to do anything good for you. But he calls Levi, the lowest of the low, the most unqualified, the person that everybody else despised. I'll take you. You, you follow me. And when, they, when he did that, he was the happiest person on the planet. That's exactly what he did. He left everything. He left his taxes. He left his occupation. He left his income. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw another guy that Jesus said, follow me. That was Simon Peter. And Simon left everything. But you know, there was a sense in which Simon could have gone back to fishing. As a matter of fact, later in the story, he actually did. But when Levi left everything, he could never go back to being a tax collector. The Romans would have never employed him again because he had already quit his job the first time. So Jesus calls him and he immediately throws a party because he's so happy that Jesus has called him. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house like some of you are going to enjoy after this service. The roast is in the oven and you're going to go have this feast. Now, Levi must have had a big house because he invited a bunch of friends. So you got a bunch of friends and a bunch of food and a bunch of happiness. He says there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Now, again, these were the lowest of the low. They'd been forsaken by everybody else, so tax collectors hung out with tax collectors. And so all the tax collectors show up. I mean, just imagine the scene of all the party animals in town showing up at your house for a feast. Just, just think, think about the tattoos and the earrings and the piercings and, and the ripped jeans for crying out loud. The people that would show up at a party like this with the lowest of the low, this was a gathering. And guess who? was the guest of honor, Jesus. Jesus felt right at home in the middle of the worst of the worst. And guess who else shows up? Next verse, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, it's interesting. Every time you see the tax collectors and it puts them in the category, you would think you would just need to say, why do you eat with sinners? But it was like there were sinners and then there was like another category of sinners, tax collectors. How many of you still believe tax collectors are sinners? <laughs> right? I mean, these guys were, nobody wanted to hang out with them. And these Pharisees grumbled, and that's what Pharisees do. And Jesus answered them and said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick and tax collectors are sick people. Thought I'd get an amen out of somebody on that. <laughs> tax collectors are sick people, and they know they're sick, but apparently Pharisees don't. And it says in verse 32, why Jesus came, he says, I have not come to call 
the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Pharisee has become synonymous with self-righteous, hypocritical, legalistic, judgmental, religious people. Now, if we were to do a survey of non-church-going people in our community, people that slept in this morning, people that are not having a nice slow brunch this morning, people taking it easy like it's Sunday morning. I never understood that at all because um, it's not easy on Sunday morning around here. For me, we're working. Now, if we took a survey of those people and we asked them, hey, those, those people that go to church, those people that are in church right now, these you and you and you and all these different people, if you had to identify those church-going people with one of these two, which one would you pick? Would you more identify these people with Jesus or with Pharisees? What would be the overwhelming response? Pharisees. The people out there think the people in here are more like Pharisees than Jesus. That's a problem. You see, every one of us is born thinking like a Pharisee. How does a Pharisee think? He, he thinks that he's better than other people. He thinks that he doesn't need grace. He thinks that he can earn his way to heaven by his good behavior. He thinks that everybody else is a sinner and he is the one to let everybody know they're a sinner. That's a problem. Now, here's how tricky it is in church, okay? The longer you've come to church, the more Bible information you have stuffed into your brain and the better that you have behaved, the more likely you are to become a modern day Pharisee. You know, a few years ago, about six years ago, we, we kind of marched verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. How many of you remember doing that? Do you remember going through the Gospel of Matthew? Anybody here during that time? There was, and it only took me 74 sermons to get through the Gospel of Matthew, okay? And you're wondering, how long are we going to take to get through Luke? Because it's longer. Yeah, just keep coming. We're, we're going to be fine. But I remember during that time, you know, the Pharisees show up in Matthew too, and I taught you to do something. Every time we encountered the Pharisees in the story, do you remember? Everybody make the sound I taught you to make when we encountered the Pharisees on the count of three. Three, two, one. Oh, I taught you to boo the Pharisees. Yeah, that was a bad plan. Um, you know why? Here's how subtle the temptation is to become a Pharisee. We read the scripture and we look down on people and we boo them. Boo, boo, Donnie, you're a Pharisee and we don't like Pharisees, boo. And what's the problem with that? I'm acting like a Pharisee for crying out loud. Do you see how subtle this is? And so we're not gonna boo the Pharisees when we walk through the Gospel of Luke. The only Pharisee that is going to get booed is the Pharisee that lives inside of me. 
because inside every heart in this room, there is a little Pharisee thinking, I'm righteous. I'm not a sinner. I don't need a physician. But I sure know a lot of people who do. That's the problem with Pharisees, is we think everybody else is sick and we're well. And Jesus said, yeah, you're not the people I hang out with. Jesus was much more comfortable hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors than he ever was. The well-behaved, buttoned up, rule-keeping Pharisees. And I don't want that to be true of our church. I want Jesus to find a group of people in here who's like, I'm a sinner, I'm sick, Jesus, come over. We, we need you here now. We, we need what you've got to offer us. We're sick. You've diagnosed us. Give us a prescription, and we need it every day. That's the attitude that we're going after. So we're just going to do a little four-question test as we walk through the message today to find out if you might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee if you have trouble diagnosing your own sin sickness. That's what we learn here from this passage. If you're, if, if you're an older sibling and you've got younger siblings, do you know that you're the one that has a tendency to be a Pharisee? To, you, you think you've got your act together and you, it's your job to point out everybody else's sin? If you're the husband in the relationship, you, you know that just because of your leadership position that God has given you, you're the one that has a tendency to become the Pharisee in the relationship and to think that it's your spouse that needs to change and you got your act together. Um, if you've got some type of leadership position, if you're a small group leader, you're a company owner, you're a manager, you're the one that has the tendency to see everybody else's sin sickness and think, I'm good. That's the problem with Pharisees. It's this self-exalted position that we think we deserve that deceives us into thinking everybody else needs Jesus and we're good. And so we don't wanna be like that. We need to daily embrace the grace of Jesus that confronts our sin. And so Jesus has compassion on these Pharisees. He wants them at the table. He wants them to be healed. But until a Pharisee sees his sin sickness, Jesus is not going to do anything for him. He came not for the self-righteous, but he came for sinners. Now, I want you to notice in this story, as he calls Levi, Jesus doesn't overlook his sin. Jesus calls Levi a sinner. If somebody's ever looked at you and says, you're a sinner, that doesn't mean they're a Pharisee. That means they're acting like Jesus. And so don't mistake what Jesus's role is in your life. Jesus doesn't excuse their sin. He calls them to repentance. This is what Jesus did so well. He accepted persons and then challenged the sinner that lives inside the person. And so we don't just say, hey, just come as you are. You don't have to do anything. There's no change. You know, don't worry about your behavior. That's not what Jesus did. He's like, no, you, you got a fundamental problem. Your sin is making you terminally sick. And the only cure is 
repentance. And so yes, you call a sinner to repentance, but you never do it from a self-righteous, religious, rule-keeping attitude. You call it from a position of grace where Jesus has come as the great physician to call people to repentance. Here's the second sign, you might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee if you feel more spiritual fasting than feasting. The story continues in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, remember him? He had a following, he's the cousin of Jesus. The disciples of John fast. They abstain from food. They have these long seasons where they don't consume food and it creates a physical hunger in them and that physical hunger is a reminder of the spiritual hunger that we all have of God. And so boy, fasting seems super spiritual, which it is. But notice these Pharisees are so focused on the fasting, they've got no category for feasting. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, your disciples, like this Levi character and Peter, Simon, John, James, these guys, they eat and they drink and they seem to enjoy it. You can't do that. You can't enjoy eating. I mean, I, we have to eat, but you, you, you're like, it should just be like gluten-free and you, like, you can't enjoy anything. I'm, I'm sorry, some of you are gluten-free and you enjoy it. I bless you. But the, eating and, and drinking is a, is a grace. It's a common grace that God gives to all. It should be enjoyed like a Krispy Kreme donut. And it says in verse 34, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? You know, our oldest daughter, Brooke, she got married in, in June. And we seriously considered, after I now pronounce you husband and wife, just announcing that the reception would be one of prayer and fasting. We're just all gonna show up and we're gonna have a fresh encounter prayer meeting. We're all gonna get on our knees and confess our sin and just you know, be, have this incredible encounter with the holiness of God. And, and we're just, you know, don't expect to eat anything because we are, we are fasting. How many people would have shown up for that? Nobody. Why? Because a wedding is not the right occasion for fasting. A wedding is the occasion for feasting. How many of you have gone to a wedding in the last year? And it was the funnest thing you've done all year long. I remember a few years ago, um, you know, we served in life action. So we had all these, these young lovers that got married over and over. And we got to perform a wedding every now and then. And I got, I got to perform this wedding of this, this great young couple. And we went to their, their wedding and, you know, we, we were kind of conservative and, and, you know, we showed up at the reception and I mean, there's disco balls and donuts and all you can eat pizza. And then the music started and, 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 and I'm, I looked, looked around and I'm like, I wonder if I got out there on the dance floor, if anybody would judge me and they didn't. And we 
danced. And I just remember that being one of the most fun times at Dave and Lori's wedding that we have ever had. I think there's still video out there on, on the internet somewhere of Andrea and I just, and we've, this is like the, the best time. And I, now some of you are sitting there, I said dancing and you're like, I, I don't, I don't think Christians can dance. I don't think some Christians can dance either. There are Christians who can dance and there are some who cannot, okay? And you should not even attempt. But there is an occasion for celebration. And if there was ever an occasion for celebration, this was it. Jesus has taken an outcast who was far from God, despised by everyone, whose occupation took him away from the people of God, and Jesus has brought him near. He has called him to repentance. He has left everything in the joy of knowing Jesus. And Jesus says, fellas, think with me. This is like a wedding. I am the groom and I have fallen madly in love with a person who had turned their back on me. I have overcome their resistance. I have won their heart. This person brings me such joy. I want to be with this person. Do you see in the story, Jesus is the groom, you are the bride. Now I know that every bride is beautiful, but you, not so much. When it comes to Jesus being attracted to you, nothing in you that would attract Jesus to you, ugly to God, and yet loved, chosen, cherished, treasured, promised, love covenant relationship engaged in, exchanging of vows, even a symbol, not a ring on our finger, but something called baptism that identifies us forever belonging to Jesus. That is an occasion, not for fasting, but for feasting. And these Pharisees had no category for it because they'd never understood that they were unconditionally loved by God. And their relationship with God is not based on how attractive they could make themselves to Jesus. But because of Jesus' unconditional love for them. They couldn't get it, they didn't have a category for that. So they just kind of felt like the best that they could do is just kind of, hey God, look how serious we are. We don't eat food. And even when we do, we don't enjoy it. Do we get brownie points for that? And that's the way that some people go through their Christian life. Hey, we come to church, but we don't enjoy it. We read our Bible, we don't enjoy it. We give our money, but we don't enjoy that. We thought about giving our tax return. By the way, have you thought about giving your tax return? <laughs> Did you get a refund this year? I mean, those buildings are going out, out there and then your tax refund will go right in there. That was just commercial. Anyway, don't give it unless you would enjoy it. 
And don't give it if somehow you think that that's going to get you brownie points in heaven. But give it out of a celebration of feasting to know that you have been brought into a a covenant love relationship with Jesus. That's what Matthew did. And he left everything. Have you left anything? It was a time for feasting. Pharisees feel a lot more spiritual fasting than they do feasting. Now, by the way, don't discount fasting. If you feel like you've lost your hunger for God, there's no better way to restore your hunger from God than to remind yourself of your physical hunger because you have abstained from food. But when that relationship is restored and you sense the presence of God, that is a time to feast, not a time to fast. Here's the third thing. Pharisees confuse resting with working. Look here, going into verse 36. Actually, verse 35, let's read that. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Yeah, there was gonna be a time when Jesus was taken away, taken away to the cross and then ascended to heaven. And so here we are for 2,000 years waiting for Jesus' soon return. And there are times when we fast, we so long to be with Jesus. We're so hungry for Jesus' presence that we, we fast. But when he returns again, it'll be a time of feasting. And then verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skin will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And again, we've mentioned this to you, but Jesus was making the analogies. These Pharisees were like these old, crusty, inflexible wineskins. And trying to put the new wine of Jesus into an old wineskins means it will burst. They, They just have no category for that. And these guys were just satisfied with the way that things had always been. That's why it says in verse 39, no one after drinking the old wine desires the new, for he says, the old is good. The old's good enough. We we just like the the way we've always done it. And our grandfather did it this way and my daddy did it this way and my church did it that way. And so this is the way we're going to do it. Instead of thinking, maybe your granddaddy was a Pharisee. Maybe the traditions of your religious experience were just a bunch of crusty old wineskins. Do you have any category to think about Jesus in a way that is a daily, enjoyable drinking in of his presence? That's what he did for Levi. That's what he wants to do for you as well. Then we get into chapter six, verse one. The next event happened on a Sabbath. While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? All right, so this is what they did. Jesus and his disciples are traveling, going through a grain field. There were no 7-Elevens available, so they grabbed some wheat and they rubbed it together in their hands and they popped it in their mouth. And in doing so, they broke four laws that the Pharisees had created in order to obey the Sabbath. Now, there is a law about the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It's real simple. It's in the top 10. Matter of fact, it's number four on God's top 10 list. Here it is. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. There you go. 
By the way, that, that law, you, you still need to do that. So here, what's the deal about a Sabbath? Sabbath is simply a day of rest. It's a day where you're supposed to cease working from whatever you did the rest of the week and give that day to God. How are you doing with that? Most of us don't do a good job with that. We need to do a better job with that because we're overworked. You say, yeah, but I got all this technology that makes my life easier. Yeah, the technology makes it possible for you to work like everywhere all the time. How are you doing with that? God has built rhythms into the human existence. The Sabbath is a rhythm. Every seventh day, cross that out on calendar, rest. He's also built a rhythm into the human existence on a daily basis. You see, every 16 hours or so, he makes you go unconscious. It's called sleep, right? Now, you can violate the Sabbath, and it's going to have negative, negative consequences, but even more immediate, you violate sleep, and you just, you just, you're going to be toast, right? And so, God builds this in. So, why do you think God built the rhythm in daily and weekly for us to rest? Real simple. God wants to convince you he can run the universe without you. He doesn't need whatever you think you have to contribute to running the world. And so every 16 hours, he puts you to sleep. He stays awake, controlling the universe. This is the reason why some of you can't sleep is because you think you have to control everything. And you can't rest because you can't trust a God who's in complete control. And that's the same reason why some of you work and never take a Sabbath day. So God builds these things into our rhythms as gifts. This is a gracious gift. Isn't sleep a gift? I'm like, I am looking forward to the gift this afternoon. And I'm looking forward uh, to that again. It's a gift. Use it. It's, it's to serve you. Every law of God is to bring you to the rest of God. Pharisees had no category for this. So do you know what they did? They elevated their view of rest, but in elevating it, do you know what they had to do? They had to work. They had to work at rest. And they confused the categories. We, we were in Israel a few weeks ago. I told you about that. And they tell you when you get to Israel, every time you go to Israel, they say, look, on the Sabbath, make sure you don't get on the wrong elevator. So here's, even in modern day, this is going to blow your mind. They say, you, so you may have a 20-story hotel, and you come in the hotel on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath over there is from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. If you get on a Sabbath elevator, you're in trouble because the Sabbath elevator stops at every floor on the way up and on the way down. Why? To prevent you from the work involved in doing this. You see, pushing a button is considered work. Really? Yeah, that's how strict all the codes and restrictions and the code of conduct, that's the, the, the world that still exists in Orthodox Judaism, and that's the world the Pharisees created. They had no category for somebody being hungry and just see, simply needing to eat. And so Jesus reminds them of this, and he tells them a story. He reminds them of their Old Testament Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He reminds them of this story, verse 3. Jesus answered them and said, have you not read? I love that because he knew they had read. 
they read, they memorized, they codified, they categorized. Yeah, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? David, their, their king, the, the, the highest person, their greatest hero in the Bible. It's, he's, uh, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath, referring to himself as the one who actually created the Sabbath, regulates the Sabbath, and gives the Sabbath as a good gift to people for a particular reason. What's the, pur- what's the ultimate purpose of this fourth commandment? It's simply this. We don't have to work to earn God's favor we can rest because of the work of the Lord of the Sabbath. And the work of the Lord of the Sabbath was on the cross paying the penalty for sin. Therefore, there's freedom. It's a gift. And yet Pharisees, they miss the purpose of the law because they've created so many external rules and codes of conduct. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was privileged to be able to speak at the chapel service at Cedarville University. My, my, two of my kids go to Cedarville University in Ohio. We love Cedarville. I love Dr. Thomas White, the president there. You go into the Cedarville campus, you feel like you're walking into Gospel City Church. There's an atmosphere of, of vertical worship and intentional discipleship. I just love it. I've seen both of my kids just take off spiritually and mature in so many ways. I love Cedarville. You got kids, send them to Cedarville. And I love being asked to speak in chapel. I've, I've spoken chapel there th- three times. And this is a, an amazing event. 4,000 college kids, all passionate, fired up with a worship you know, team like we just experienced. And then you get up to engage them. And you got 30 minutes to cram it all in because they got to go back to class. And they do this every day. I'm like, oh, this is, this is so great. Now, the first time I went to Cedarville, you kind of wonder, you know, what should I wear? What, you know, what do you wear at a, on a college campus? Um, you know, and so I, I went kind of conservative. I, I, you know, tucked my shirt in and I had a coat and I delivered my message, but I felt overdressed. So the second time I went and spoke, I got rid of the coat and I kept my shirt tucked in. The third time I went just a couple weeks ago, I thought I'm looking at 4,000 college kids. Not one of them has a shirt tucked in. I can't even find any collars in the room. So I'm thinking, I'm trying to engage these people, so I dress the way I'm dressed right now. As a matter of fact, I wore this shirt. And it went great, had a wonderful time, packed up, went home. Cedarville live streams their their chapel services, and just like we do on Facebook, and so you can kind of comment on it. And so I, I actually saw the comments that people were making. People were very nice and you know making wonderful comments. And then there was this one comment. This is what it said. Tuck in your shirt. I'm like, really? I mean, is that really the deepest, deepest theological question we need to ask whether to tuck or untuck? Really? 
I clicked on the guy to see who it was, and it took me, uh, you know, you can do that. You can spy on people. And, you know, it, it was a pastor, a pastor of a small church. I'm sure it was a wonderful church, but it, it showed him, and, and sure enough, he's in a coat and tie in his church. Now, if I got invited to speak at his church, what would I wear? A coat and tie. I don't think I'm going to get invited to speak at his church, though. <laughs> But really, do we need to spend mental energy on this topic? I mean, come on. Is that the height of your religious experience, going around and evaluating how people tuck or untuck, whether or not they pierce or don't pierce, tattoos, wear their hair, whether they wear a hat in church? I mean, come on, people. Jesus would have been a lot more comfortable with the messiest people. I love it when new people who've never been in church meet Jesus and they get saved and they come into our church. It's a mess. It's like a puppy. They're the cutest things. You want to hang out with them, but they leave messes everywhere, right? And, and that's exactly the way church is supposed to be. And yet Pharisees can't take it. They can't handle it because the people haven't been spiritually house trained yet. Like, put a piece of newspaper down for them and, you know, let them out. They're more comfortable. They think they're an outside Christian. You know, let them out. And no, no, we want them inside. We want them in the house of the Lord. Here's the last thing. Pharisees are more skilled at watching than caring. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. All right, so let's identify with the guy with the withered hand. This is back in the day. There were no white collar jobs, only blue collar jobs. That guy's right hand was important. That guy's right hand was the source of all of his productivity. And like many of us, I'm sure he wrapped his productivity around his identity. And when he lost his productivity, when that hand began to wither, his identity was probably taking a hit. Am I still valuable? Do I have worth? Maybe you've been disabled. Maybe you have gotten old. Maybe there's a weakness that you didn't used to have and you've lost productivity. If your identity is tied to your product productivity, you're gonna lose your sense of value and your sense of worth. And maybe that is what this guy is experiencing. Don't ever wrap your productivity to your ability to produce. Your ability to produce money, your ability to produce children, your ability to pr produce approval, and whether it's a withered hand or a withered brain or a withered body, be careful because all of us are physically withering. So this guy shows up Jesus has compassion on him. And in verse 7, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. Now, see the word watched in verse 7? That word actually means spied on him. They watched him out of the corner of their eye to see what he was going to do. To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. That's what Pharisees do. They don't look for a reason to love him they look for a reason not to love him. They look for a reason to accuse him. In verse 8, Jesus knew their thoughts. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? Now, this is not a hard question. Multiple choice, Sabbath day, good or harm? Which one are we going with? Good. Just to clarify, he says it another way. To save life or destroy it? Not a hard question. Which one are we going with? Save life. But do you know the Pharisees are sitting there answering that question? Harm, destroy. And they thought that was the right answer. Why? Because it's the Sabbath. They did not understand the law of love, which trumps all of their religious man-made categories. And so in verse 10, after looking at them, I just love that. Now Jesus is spying on them. He's looking out of the corner of their eye at them. And he's examining them. He said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. All right. So Jesus heals people in different ways every time. Jesus could have looked at that guy and like, your hand's fine. And his hand would have been fine, right? But he doesn't do that. He requires the guy to do something first. What? Stretch out your hand. If you don't stretch out your hand, I'm not healing it. He makes him stretch out his hand. Why? To violate the Sabbath. Just to stick it in the eye of the Pharisees. Yeah, do that. Oh, look, he just violated the Sabbath. Yeah, and he got his hand healed. Because the law of love is all about caring and doing good and bringing life. The law was never meant to do harm. The law was never meant to destroy. Do you care that there are people all around us whose lives are withering? Or do you just sit back and look for a reason why their lives are withering? I know why that, that, that probably, you know, spent their money unwisely. They probably got some kind of a drug addiction. But do you care? And are you interested in those people being restored? Pharisees weren't. Last verse, verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus on the Sabbath. They started working to find a way to destroy Jesus while they pretended to be resting. I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're like Levi and maybe you've heard the voice of Jesus said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Leave it all. What should you do? Follow him. Maybe your life is withering. Maybe your productivity is withering. What should you do? Stretch out your life to Jesus and let him restore your identity and your productivity. Maybe you've been working when you should be resting. Don't be a Pharisee and don't judge what everybody else is doing. Look for the Pharisee inside of your heart and boo that Pharisee. Let's bow our heads. I wanna invite you to stand right now with heads bowed and eyes closed. We're gonna sing our response to the Lord this morning. Don't rush too past, don't rush too quickly past what the Holy Spirit may have said to you this morning. 
come back to a humble, broken, dependent, desperate relationship with Jesus? Do you know that you're loved unconditionally? Like a groom loves a bride and wins her heart, overcomes her defenses. Your acceptance before Jesus is not based on your work. It's based on his work on the cross for your sin. Jesus, remind us of that. And Lord, I pray that this would be a place where you continually call sinners to repentance. That Pharisees are quickly driven out. Bring us back to humility and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing this together as our response.